Hey, American Hauntings fans, it's Troy. Have you checked out the latest season of our Patreon podcast yet? If not, you should, because it's called Sinister, and it digs deep into the life and crimes of H.H. Holmes, the serial killer, swindler, builder of the murder castle, and the villain of the 1893 World's Fair. Reviews have called it amazing. Reviews say the season brings to life this truly sinister man, and another one adds that listeners have learned details they've never heard before. So if you want to listen to what they're all talking about, become a Patreon supporter and get this podcast every other week at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And now, on with the show. She was taken by gypsies. That was the common belief in Chicago in 1911, when a five-year-old girl named Elsie Perobic vanished while walking to the home of her aunt, who lived just around the corner from the Perobic home on South Albany Avenue. On the way, she stopped for a moment to listen to an organ grinder on the corner of 23rd Street, where she watched the man's monkey dance to the delight of Elsie and a group of other children. When the organ grinder moved down the block past her aunt's house, though, Elsie didn't follow. But where she went next, no one knows. She never arrived at her aunt's house, as her mother, Carolina, found out later that afternoon. But no one was surprised. Not yet. The family had many friends in the neighborhood. She probably went to one of their homes. But that evening, around 9 p.m., when her father, Frank, came home from work, Everyone was in a panic. Frank went straight to the Henman Street Police Station and reported his daughter missing. Initially, the police agreed that she was likely just with friends, but when Elsie hadn't returned home the next morning, Captain John Mahoney took personal charge of the search for the missing girl. Detectives from several stations canvassed the neighborhood and suspects soon emerged. A boy told detectives from the Maxwell Street station that he'd seen a gypsy wagon, as the Romany people were called in those less enlightened times. He'd seen the wagon on Kedzie Avenue. There were two women on it, and one of them, he said, was holding a little girl. Well, the police knew of several gypsy camps along the Des Plaines River near Kedzie and went down to speak with the residents. They told investigators that one wagon had decamped and left on the morning of April 9th. Now, while the idea of being stolen by gypsies sounds pretty far-fetched today, the theory was plausible at the time, when the Romani were feared, discriminated against, and accused of all kinds of things, including theft, fortune-telling, and of course, stealing little white children, even though the Perobic family were immigrants from Czechoslovakia. Meanwhile, Frank Perobic had offered his life savings of $50, which would be a little over $1,100 today, as a reward for his daughter's return. Detectives from Maxwell Street searched the Italian neighborhoods around West 14th and South Halstead Streets, where it was reported that a girl fitting Elsie's description had been seen with an organ grinder. Canals and rivers were dragged and alleys and abandoned buildings were searched. Illinois Governor Dan Deneen asked the public to assist with the search and soon there were thousands of people on the lookout for the little girl. But she was nowhere to be found. Police detectives took Frank Perobic with them as they traveled miles around the city, searching for Romany encampments. 
They followed false leads chasing down wagons in McHenry, Sycamore, Western Springs, Cherry Valley, and beyond. The newspapers ran with the idea that Elsie had been snatched by gypsies because, as one story put it, the, quote, natural love of the wandering people for blue-eyed, yellow-haired children. By April 30th, Elsie had been missing for three weeks, and the city was in an uproar. The superintendent of schools, Mrs. Ella Flagg Young, requested that all the school children in the Chicago area organize neighborhood searches during their spring break. Around this same time, Frank Perobic, out of desperation, consulted a psychic medium who said that Elsie was in Argo, Wisconsin. Chicago politician Charles J. Vovitka sent officers to the area that she indicated, but there was no sign of the girl. The search went from Illinois to Wisconsin, Wisconsin to Minnesota, and then back again to Illinois, but with no luck. The Czech community in Chicago rallied to support the family. All Czech-speaking policemen were put into plain clothes and all assigned to the investigation. More rewards were offered, some from Czech groups and politicians and others. Mayor Carter Harrison Jr. even contributed $25, which is $600 in today's money, to a personal reward fund that was set up. Anton Cermak, who was then a Chicago alderman, stated that if Elsie was not found by the next city council meeting on May 1st, he would call upon the city council to offer an even larger reward. Well, the police were overwhelmed with calls. The search of the gypsy camps continued. By May 7th, 25 more camps had been searched and several false leads had turned up nothing. Police Captain Mahoney sadly announced his belief that Elsie was dead, but vowed that the police would continue to search for her body. Well, Captain Mahoney turned out to be right. On May 9th, Elsie's body was discovered in the drainage canal near Joliet. Her grief-struck parents had to identify her body. An inquest would later determine that she'd been raped and beaten before she was suffocated and thrown into the canal. Frank and Carolina, along with the police, would continue to claim that Elsie had been stolen and murdered by gypsies, although no proof of that existed. They were just simply easy to blame. After Elsie's funeral, which was paid for from the various reward funds, the police investigation was reinvigorated and detectives soon had a suspect, a bearded bohemian named Joseph Canestri. The eccentric Canestri was said to have, quote, frequently enticed little girls to his hut by the drainage canal, the same canal where Elsie's body was discovered. He lived in a shack about a mile and a half from the Perobic home, and witnesses suddenly recalled seeing him around the neighborhood. When Canestri found out he was suspected of Elsie's murder by the police, he threw himself in front of a train and was killed. Five days later, though, a solid alibi came forward, and he was cleared of any wrongdoing. Whoever had killed the little girl, it wasn't Joseph Canestri. And after that... The case went cold. A few other leads were followed, but all of them led nowhere. After more than a century, we still don't know what happened to Elsie when she was on her way to her aunt's house or who killed her. But at least Frank and Carolina knew what happened to their daughter, as horrible and heartbreaking as it was. But that knowledge did them little good. Just two years later, on the anniversary of Elsie's funeral, Frank died at the age of only 45. 
His wife lived for a dozen more years, but never recovered from the shock of losing her daughter and her husband. It's tragic for me to say it this way, but at least in death, the family has been reunited. The three are buried together in Chicago's Bohemian National Cemetery, leaving the haunting mystery of Elsie's unsolved murder for the rest of us to wander about. Just as we do with the story of another young girl that went missing four decades later, this time in Cleveland, Ohio. The story of Beverly Potts is one of the most terrifying mysteries in the city's history. But unlike Elsie, no trace of Beverly has ever been found. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America has a long history of strangeness and unexplainable happenings. Tragic events have occurred here and mysteries exist for which no rational explanation can be found. And those mysteries include unsolved disappearances, like the ones we're featuring this season. We've opened the files on people who have gone missing, vanished without a trace, and have never been seen again. Their stories are haunting, heartbreaking, and tragic. They're bizarre, unexpected, and sometimes even seem impossible. But one thing we do know is that they did happen. These people walked out the door one day and never returned. Their stories have no conclusion. Their cases remain open. Their mysteries are unsolved. They are gone. But we aren't allowing them to be forgotten. This is episode 12 of the season. A story about a little girl who was supposed to be home before it got dark. It's hard to imagine today what America was like in the 1950s. It's true, there was a lot going on. Americans were dying in Korea during the conflict that had started there. The Russians had gone from our allies to our enemies after World War II, and the Cold War was starting to heat up. The country was still racially segregated, although the civil rights movement was starting to gain strength, and Senator Joseph McCarthy was pursuing his dangerous witch hunts against real and imaginary communists at all levels of the government. But those things weren't foremost in the minds of most Americans. Most of us were concerned with our homes, our children, and our jobs in a time of post-World War II prosperity. We were making mortgage payments and car payments and making sure the kids had clothes and shoes for school. In Northern Ohio, people were concerned about the Cleveland Indians who were locked in a close race with the New York Yankees during the last hot days of August. No one was thinking about little girls being taken off the street by strangers. Something like that didn't happen in a nice neighborhood in Cleveland. And then it did. In the summer of 1951, Beverly Potts was just 10 years old. She was a normal, pleasant, likable girl who stood just under five feet tall. 
She was known for being a little shy, but got along well with her teachers and classmates. She had a close relationship with her nearly perfect All-American family, which rounded out the picture of her normal, happy, All-American childhood. Beverly's father, Robert, was a stagehand employed at the Allen Theater on Euclid Avenue in Cleveland. Her mother, Elizabeth, of course, stayed at home and raised Beverly and her older daughter, Anita, 22, who still lived with her sister and parents. By late August, Beverly was enjoying the last weeks of summer vacation before starting the fifth grade at Louis Agassi's Elementary School on Cleveland's west side. She spent most of her time playing with her friends, especially her next door neighbor, Patricia Swing, who was just a few months older than Beverly, but still in the same grade. On Friday, August 24th, Beverly was particularly excited because she knew that the following day, she and her sister were going with their parents to an all-day outing at Euclid Beach Park. It would be her last chance to enjoy the beach and the lake before classes started again for the new school year. And then that afternoon, she received more great news. The show wagon was coming to nearby Halloran Park that evening. Sponsored by the Recreation League and the Cleveland Press, the show wagon had become an annual summer tradition by the 1950s. A troupe of singers, dancers, magicians, and other performers, the show wagon traveled around Cleveland's neighborhoods during the summer, offering free performances at parks, playgrounds, and other public venues. Beverly was excited. The show wagon was her favorite part of the summer. But then she remembered that she was grounded for coming home late a few nights earlier. Fighting her disappointment, she went to her mother and begged to go see the show that night. She promised to do any chores her mother asked her to do. She'd please just let her go, just this one time. Elizabeth sighed. Beverly rarely misbehaved. How could she say no? So she agreed but on one condition, that Beverly come straight home as soon as the show was over. She wanted her to be home before it got too dark. Beverly squealed with delight. Of course, she promised, and as she skipped out of the kitchen, her mother reminded her of one more thing, something she'd been telling Beverly a lot lately. Don't talk to strangers, especially men, and never go anywhere with them. Beverly assured her she'd be careful, and that became the last promise she ever made to her mother. After supper was finished, Beverly washed up and hurried next door to get her friend Patricia. The two girls quickly rode away on their bicycles and headed straight for Halloran Park. They arrived just after 7 p.m. and the show was in full swing. They listened to the music, watched the acrobats, laughed at the jugglers and gasped when the magic acts took the stage. And all the while, the sun dipped lower in the sky. By 8.40, the streetlights had turned on and the sun was almost below the horizon. Patricia told Beverly she had to go. Her mother told her to be home by dark. Beverly's mother had told her she could stay until the show was over. And to Beverly, that meant she could stay until dark if she wanted to. And why not? She was in her own neighborhood, surrounded by hundreds of people, most of whom were her own neighbors. So Beverly stayed. She'd follow in a few minutes, right after this act, she said. 
Patricia told her friend goodbye and rode off on her bike toward home. Her last memory of Beverly was seeing her standing and watching the show. A, quote, plump little woman stood behind her. Oddly, she had one hand on Beverly's shoulder and the other holding a small child on her hip. Patricia didn't know the woman, but Beverly seemed to, so she thought nothing else about it. Patricia rode off on her bike down Lynette Avenue and was safely home before 9 p.m. And she never saw Beverly again. But who did? Well, no one knows. Later, there would be dozens of witnesses, mostly children and teenagers who came forward with stories. Far too many of them turned out to be unlikely, mistaken, or outright lies told to get attention. The woman seen by Patricia standing behind Beverly in the park was never identified. And neither were the two young men who had a green car that a nine-year-old claimed she saw Beverly get into that night. The police also never found the convertible that an out-of-town visitor said she saw Beverly riding in that night around 10 p.m. And there would be hundreds of other stories, just like these, about mysterious cars and unknown individuals, none of which could ever be verified. But we do know that by 9.30 p.m., Beverly's family had realized she was still not home. Her sister, Anita, called next door to the swing house. Patricia's parents told her that their daughter had come home alone. Beverly had stayed for the rest of the show, which her mother had given her permission to do. Beverly's father, more irritated than concerned at this point, walked down to Halloran Park. The show was over. The park was dark by this time. He looked for his daughter on the way to the park, and while walking home, he checked with his neighbors along the street. No one had seen Beverly except at the show. No one, they said, had seen her after that. Robert, now worried, rushed home, and he called the police. The disappearance was taken seriously, and soon one of the largest searches in Cleveland's history had begun. Within hours, dozens, then hundreds, and then thousands of Cleveland residents began searching for the missing girl. The next morning, every postal carrier in the city was given a description of Beverly, and posters with their picture on them began appearing on utility poles, empty walls, doors, and windows all over Cleveland. Platoons of Boy Scouts, off-duty police officers and firemen, union members, and eager volunteers combed the city. Beverly sightings poured in from all over the area, sometimes as many as 1,500 each day. Some tips were sincere and had great potential, like a report from a New York Central Railroad engineer who saw a girl matching Beverly's description get into a car with a teenage boy. And then there was the witness who saw two men in a 1937 black Dodge talking to a girl who might have been Beverly in Halloran Park. Then there were the obvious cranks who inevitably gravitated toward the Potts case, just as we've heard about other cases throughout this season of the podcast. Hundreds of bizarre stories flooded the police department, tying up officers and tip lines. One veteran newsman said that the case seemed to unleash an unprecedented deluge of cranks, astrologers, dream interpreters, and cultists of every kind. The Cleveland police did the best they could, considering there were virtually no clues and no apparent motive for the crime, if it was a crime at all. The FBI declined to get involved with the case since there was no evidence of a kidnapping although they did eventually distribute 22,000 posters of Beverly across the country. The city had never seen anything like the hysteria that surrounded Beverly's disappearance. 
It stayed at a fever pitch thanks to the competition between the city's three newspapers and the new local television station. Every possible theory was investigated and every corner of Cleveland was searched in the weeks that followed, but nothing was found. More than 30 suspects, all of them male deviants with child molesting records, were arrested, questioned, forced to submit to polygraph exams, and eventually released. Detectives considered two motives for Beverly's disappearance. She'd been abducted for ransom or had suffered a sexual assault. All mail sent to the Potts household was intercepted and screened for ransom demands before being turned over to the family but the cops found no note. So they turned to a sexual motive and surmised the killer was likely a local man known, at least by sight, to Beverly, and that she'd almost certainly been either forced into a car or lured into a home close to the park. And detectives had good reason for believing this was the case. You see, three months before Beverly disappeared in May 1951, a five-year-old Lakewood girl named Gail Ann Michael had been taken from a local department store. Fortunately, she was found abandoned and unharmed about 18 hours later. That same month, two underage girls had been sexually assaulted in Halloran Park. And just weeks prior to Beverly's disappearance, three local women had been sexually assaulted in locations close to the Potts' home. It was no wonder that her mother had been urging her not to talk to strangers, especially men. So why would she? Beverly was known for being shy, especially around men. She was also wary of strangers, men and women alike, but detectives theorized she'd been enticed into a nearby house or a car on her way home by someone she knew, perhaps with the promise of a babysitting job or a request to run an errand that ended with her abduction instead. This theory was considered particularly likely to Inspector James MacArthur, who told reporters on August 29th, Beverly lived in a happy home and had no desire to run away. I think she was taken away in an automobile by a person or person she knew well enough to talk to. Every bit of evidence in this case, every report and every conversation leads to the conclusion that Beverly absolutely would not have gone anywhere with a stranger. But no matter what though, she was gone. From the moment of her disappearance to this day, no solid evidence as to the fate of Beverly Potts has ever been found. Well, eventually, Cleveland began to return to the routine of daily life. Summer was over and students, except for Beverly Potts, of course, went back to school. By the middle part of September, Beverly's case no longer appeared in the newspapers every day. Grace Michelle, who would have been Beverly's fifth grade teacher, kept an empty seat waiting for the girl in her classroom. But Beverly was still gone. The case may have cooled off, but she hadn't been forgotten. Two months later, on November 9, 1951, Robert Potts received a telephone call at work. A man's voice asked him if he wanted to get his daughter back. If you do, the caller said, connect your phone tomorrow at 3.30 p.m. and raise $25,000. Don't tell the police or we'll cut the girl's throat. She's out of town. More calls followed, and by the next week, arrangements had been made by Robert Potts, who was working with the police, to have his wife, Elizabeth, deliver a ransom to Beverly's captors at 5.30 a.m. on November 15th. 
The drop-off was an address on Prospect Avenue, and Mrs. Potts was instructed to turn money over to a, quote, Negro man. On the morning of November 15th, Mrs. Potts, or actually Detective Bernard J. Conley, very unconvincingly disguised in his mother's clothes, showed up to deliver the ransom. The ransom, though, was actually stacks of $5 bills and cut-up newspapers. Whether frightened by the sight of the burly detective in a woman's dress or something else, the man who was supposed to pick up the ransom turned and took off running before he'd reached the drop site. He didn't get far. Just seconds later, he was surrounded by 23 Cleveland cops, one of whom put a shotgun to his head. Well, it turned out not to be a kidnapping at all. It was a pathetic, sad story of criminal stupidity. The so-called kidnapper, Frank Davis, was deeply in debt and decided to extort money from the Potts family by pretending to be Beverly's kidnapper. His cruel hoax earned him a prison term, and it became a painful reminder for the little girl's parents about their continuing tragedy. Oh, and also it earned Detective Conley months of teasing from his colleagues about how swell he looked in his mother's dress. Life went on, but there was still no sign of Beverly. Anita moved to another city in 1952, married and had children of her own. Elizabeth Potts never recovered from the loss of her daughter, although she tried to forget by giving away Beverly's toys and clothing and packing away her pictures. Her health slowly declined and she died from liver disease in May of 1956, while still a young woman. Robert Potts blamed her death on the same person who took Beverly. More time passed. More hoaxes, false leads, and dead ends plagued the few detectives still working the case. Then in 1955, they got what seemed to be a break. Walter J. Titchler, a house painter, father of eight, and convicted child molester, was arrested in Santa Ana, California, on suspicion of Beverly's murder. Titchler had been working at the National Carbon Company plant close to Halloran Park on the night of Beverly's disappearance, and he seemed to know a lot about the case. But the Orange County Sheriff's Department later decided that Titchler had gotten all his information from the newspapers, and they eventually cleared him. He was never even brought back to Cleveland for interrogation. But then four months later, Harvey Lee Rush, an alcoholic drifter, confessed to Los Angeles detectives that he had killed a little girl in Cleveland after luring her from a West Side carnival. Rush was able to pick Beverly's picture out of a group of six photographs, but his description of her appearance, especially what she was wearing that night, was wildly inaccurate. This time, the suspect was brought back to Cleveland, and detectives took him out to Hilliard Ridge Road, where he claimed he'd buried Beverly's body. He couldn't find the spot, but he swore he'd buried her there for a little while anyway. It was a newspaper reporter who got Rush to admit that he'd made up the story to evade vagrancy charges and get a free trip to Cleveland. Rush, who'd been arrested over a hundred times for public intoxication, was subsequently placed in a state mental hospital. In the same year that Elizabeth Potts died, more strange occurrences happened in her daughter's case. Just five days after Elizabeth's death, a local truck driver, who was also a convicted child molester, confessed to Cleveland police that he'd, quote, killed a girl near a playground three or four years earlier. But his alleged memories of that August night at Halloran Park were filled with inaccuracies, and the police 
finally dismissed him as yet another crackpot. In December, a West Side man was arrested for taking lewd pictures of children. In one of the many albums he had when he was arrested, a photograph was discovered that detectives thought might be Beverly. But Robert Potts ruled it out. It wasn't his daughter, but hey, at least another pedophile was off the street. In 1961, what seemed to be a promising lead developed in New Jersey. The wife of a mental patient at a state hospital became convinced that her husband knew something about Beverly's disappearance. Cleveland police became very interested when it was discovered that the man had accumulated 50 charges of molesting young girls and was accused of exposing himself in Cleveland's Lakewood Park in September 1951. Hopes of solving the Potts case ended, though, after detectives interviewed the man at the Morristown Hospital and concluded he had nothing to do with the murder. Then in 1970, Robert Potts joined his wife in death. He continued to live alone in the family home on Lynette Avenue, and he died alone of heart failure in the living room. His body was found slumped over on the couch with the television switched on. His obituary received little attention. By then, he was just another man haunted by events from the past. The mystery had ended for Robert and Elizabeth Potts, but the police were still on the case. In April 1973, Cleveland detectives got a tip from a former playmate of Beverly's that she was buried beneath an abandoned grease pit under a place called Jim's Custom Body Shop on West 52nd Street. Detectives dutifully dug down five feet to the concrete floor, broke it apart, and went down a few feet deeper. Nothing was found, although curiously, Mrs. Amber Ware, a cousin of Beverly's, was living in an apartment in the same building where the repair shop was located. She'd been living there at the time of the disappearance, and Beverly had often visited her cousin there. It seemed too strange to be a coincidence, but apparently that's what it turned out to be. By 1980, the case had been largely forgotten until a retiring Cleveland detective named James First made local news by stating that he and his partner, James Shanklin, had actually solved the Potts case six years earlier. First explained that he had received a letter in 1974 that was written by the brother of a man who fled Cleveland in 1966 after being indicted on a charge of abducting two young girls. The letter writer said that his brother told him many years earlier that he'd kidnapped a girl named Beverly from Halloran Park. First and Shanklin traced the letter writer's brother to Maple Heights and confronted him one night in his driveway. First's recollection was that the man immediately blurted out, you finally got me, I'm glad it's over. The man then made other incriminating statements and the two detectives knew they had their man. They took the information to Cuyahoga County Assistant Prosecutor Joseph Donahue, but he refused to prosecute with just the man's statement. There was no evidence to back up his claims. James First was convinced he knew who Beverly's killer was, but that he'd gotten away with her murder. Was he right? We'll never know, but things do get weirder after that. 
In February 1994, a couple renovating a house on Midvale Avenue in Cleveland discovered several pieces of yellowing notebook paper along with a man's shirt beneath some old carpeting. The note was written by a woman named Anna Hainick, and she recorded in detail what she claimed were the true facts in Beverly's case. She said the abduction and murder had been committed by her husband, Steve, who had been the Potts family's milkman. She also went on to say that Steve had raped Elizabeth Potts and was probably Beverly's biological father. He'd killed Beverly, she wrote, and dismembered her. Anna had caught him incinerating the remains in their basement furnace. Anna was traced by the police and the now 83-year-old woman was questioned. She admitted writing and hiding the letter, but insisted the story was all made up. It had been a revenge fantasy that she'd written in hopes she'd get her abusive husband into trouble. She also added that by the time Steve had died in 1981, she'd actually forgotten all about the letter. Then, starting in July 2000, a series of handwritten letters were sent to the editorial offices of the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper. They were allegedly from an old man who claimed to be terminally ill and who wanted to confess to molesting and murdering Beverly before he died. The murder had been unplanned, the letter writer said, and he'd only wanted to fondle Beverly before luring her into his car. But when Beverly started screaming, he struck her and accidentally killed her. When he discovered she was dead, he threw her body into the river and she'd likely drifted to Lake Erie. The letters were turned over to the police who were skeptical about their authenticity. Their skepticism increased when they found several sentences and claims in the series of letters that had been copied from previous hoax letters and were word for word from false claims made by earlier suspects. This led the cops to speculate that they'd been written by a retired police officer. But if they were, no one ever found out. The writer promised to turn himself in on the 50th anniversary of Beverly's disappearance, but then shortly beforehand, he wrote to say he had to enter a nursing home and would be unable to honor his promise or otherwise reveal himself. An extensive investigation failed to turn up any clues to the author's identity, and investigators came to believe the letters were nothing more than a hoax committed in very bad taste. And I'm sure that Beverly's sister, Anita, felt the same way about them. In 1991, she had placed a gravestone next to those of her parents in West Park Cemetery. She said that if her sister's remains were ever found and identified, she'd be laid to rest beneath the stone, which was inscribed with the words, in memory of Beverly Rose Potts. Anita continued the search for her sister until her death in 2006. She seldom discussed the disappearance though, her daughter Megan said but it haunted her throughout her life. In much the same way, it haunted the city of Cleveland, which will never be free from the terrible event that tarnished its history in 1951. Most who live in the city today don't know much about the story of this little lost girl, but their parents and grandparents are still reminded of the tragedy with their own memories of the 1950s and the day when it stopped being safe to play outside after dark.
reading something, mm-hmm. you know, and fucking it up. Yep. So yeah. I was waiting because I, I was like, if he doesn't cuss at the end, this is not authentic. <laughs> and then no. sure shit. Yeah. You did. Oh, God. Oh. All right. You ready? Yep. I'm ready. Okay. Thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call... Gone. That's that's, an that's a quick okay. one. Just yep. thought I'd do it quick, straight, um, straight to you, the point. Why, how is this just season season seven? And how are we just like you've spread them out over how, a year how now? Fuck, it seems like a long time. Yeah, um, but and we still got a ways to go. So and there's good ones coming up. So it's not even like I haven't liked them. This one yeah. was especially weird this week, you know, but we'll, I don't, we'll, oh, I'm sorry. We'll get to that. Finished. No, no, I'm your co-host Cody <laughs> Beck and with me is my um, interrupting co-host yeah, as always. Already interrupting. Yeah. Author, historian, crime book, the ground of American hauntings, Troy Taylor, full name, Troy Taylor. What's up, man? Have you said all you wanted to say? Yeah, oh, yeah. I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> uh, I saw his Troy. Yeah, Troy's just sitting there with this little <laughs> solemn look on his face. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt. No, it's fine. Yeah, but as, as far as how is this only season seven? I mean, we started off kind of short and then it was just like a year, a year. A yeah, year. well, and, you know, um, which I'm not mad about the, because if I get excited about a topic you know, yeah. as we have the last, you know, several years, well, pretty much all of them. But, you know, I, I just started planning them out in advance and mm-hmm. that's just how long it takes. So and you you cut um, episodes out, you combine episodes. I do. Like you, you don't keep I any do change it around. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. That is true. Uh, it's just on, you know, whatever the the, the spirit takes me, you know, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, whichever yeah. way the wind blows. Yeah, that's going to make those outlines you printed out for me like worth something a lot in the future. Uh, probably because not, but maybe not, to you, no one else. Not, but, well, uh, that's, what, oh, that's what I meant. Yeah. Just, <laughs> okay, I was going to say. I'll, I'll put them on eBay, $20,000. So oh, just know oh my God, much I, found one of, I found one of my books on eBay. Okay, so I did. So let me let me start this. Let me preface this okay. by saying that. Um, I, I had a really great weekend. I had these, I had, it's not always that you get a tour on a Friday night and a dinner on a Saturday night and have like fantastic people on both. Yeah. But it happened this week We we really did. It was like, the, these were like the greatest couple of the best groups ever. Right. So anyway, there was a, I had done a, um, uh, presentation last night on gangs of Southern Illinois that topic of the book that's coming out Mm -hmm. and a lady had brought with her an old life magazine that um had an article about the shelton gang well it was about gambling across the country and had a big thing about illinois in it because it was so corrupt in the 40s yeah i mean you know because illinois politics have changed so much but Mm -hmm. anyway it was so corrupt in the 40s and anyway it has some stuff about shelton gang so i might want to see it and i did i was looking at it while people were uh reading their dinner and then, you know, I got so excited about it. I said, you know, I'm just going to track one down, a copy mm-hmm. of this. So I got on eBay and while I was standing there, while everyone was eating and found a copy and it's on its way. Okay. So, yeah. but while I'm on eBay, it pops up. I don't know if it's because I put in my mailing address or anything, but it, it pops up some of my books, right. Mm-hmm. That you can buy on eBay. And most of them are priced what I would probably price them at on eBay, like $5, you know? <laughs> so, um, but one of them was $995. Damn. Which one I was know. it? Um, I can't even remember now. Damn. I just was so floored by that because it was, it was signed and I thought <laughs> big fucking deal, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I like it when I'm excited when people want me to sign their books, but seriously not 
buying it or $95. So yep. I've decided to raise all my prices. <laughs> no matter how the what the book is marked, they're now $800 each. And so, the, the eBay user, it was uh, Becco19. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, that, you should feel honored. Uh, that, that's yeah, well, amazing. It's silly. I mean, it's, every once in a while, something will pop up that is, you know, long out of print or something. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I could see charging a little bit more for it. I wouldn't pay it, but I can see why some people, yeah. you know, might ask for more for it. That doesn't mean they're getting it, but that was it was just stupid. You know, no, that's, just, that's amazing. I, no, uh, I, I, was, I, I like it. I was doing <laughs> uh, my, uh, whenever I get into a good mood, I will uh, Google our us or a podcast and stuff because I want to just ruin it again, you know, right? Yeah, oh, right, right, exactly. Is there anything yeah. new? Well, how do and, I feel bad about myself? Yeah, exactly. It's feeling too good. I got. I'm gonna drop the other shoe before it can drop mm -hmm. on me. Um, but I told you I found like an American Hauntings podcast like subreddit a while back. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. there's not a lot of posts there or anything, but apparently they they heard that I saw it and then they commented on it. It's like Cody found the subreddit. So I think it's, <laughs> the whole thing is just going to be probably anytime I mentioned that I saw the subreddit. <laughs> now they'll be posted somewhere. Yeah, but I, I love it. So, so yeah, it's it's still really fun when people people do stuff like that. But well, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna plug one thing uh, mm -hmm. before we go on. Um it's because speaking about the dinners, um we do have some stuff coming up just for summer. I mean we're technically we're halfway through the summer season as far as summer goes but as far as like our events go we, we are actually winding down for what's available for the summer um because i always try to add some unusual things we don't do at other times of the year in the summertime because it's mm -hmm. i mean it's technically it's the off season so i figure that people that will come to the stuff um you know with, with the dinners especially uh are the diehard people so they should get to do something a little bit different so um, the only thing that is something I've done before really is the Lizzie Borden dinner on the 5th of August, because we do that every year on the anniversary around the anniversary. So, mm -hmm. um, that's still coming up. Um, the, um, the, the cults, the American cults presentation and dinner is on the 12th and that'll be updated because I update that one every year with different cults, usually, you know, yeah. mixture of other stuff. And then on the 19th is, um, Al Capone and Chicago gangland ghosts. And that is the same day that my new book, Blood, Bullets, and Booze, comes out. That's the Southern Illinois book. So there's a book signing that day, dinner on Chicago that evening. So it's kind of gangsters from all over Illinois. Absolutely. <laughs> I love one. it. So, And then we still do have a couple of tours left uh, for summer. Goes to the River Road, um, a couple of the great river hauntings, the ones that go to Pier Marquette. And I believe I got one, I think, left of Spirits of Alton, uh, which is the dinner tour that stays in town. Um, so if you're interested in any of those, check them out at dinnerandspirits.com. Um, I also just posted everything through the end of the year is up now. So anything that you couldn't get into, because we've had a lot of stuff sold out fast, um, we may be doing it again. Um, so check out the website. Or um, just check out the website for all the new stuff we've got coming up and a lot of updated and new versions of stuff too coming up this fall. So yeah, nice. anyway, I'm excited about it. I feel like a lot of your job aside from writing books has to just be updating websites and things. Yeah, it's uh, that's the, the thing I hate doing the most. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things where I have to really, you know, force myself to sit down and update websites. Yeah, it's yeah. not much fun. It's I so weird, say, but I like I do it for fun. I like it when it's done, but I don't want to do it for fun. So. Yeah, yeah, I do it for fun all the time. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, check out all those events, and now I will know exactly when if I want to have dinner with Troy. I'll know. That's I'll, right. You'll know where I'll be. Don't tell so, me you're not in town. I know. You yeah, are. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really just a it's just a, a, a planning thing. I put up the website. It's a planner for stalkers. Yeah, so exactly. Just know exactly where I'll be. So exactly. <laughs> uh, cool. So we got a listener review. This one is from Marilyn Matt, and it's titled "In My Top Two." which is something I haven't heard before. Um, so it says, uh, heard Troy while re-listening to the Velisca Act series on, on Astonishing Legends, which is a great podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah Being yeah. a fan of both history and mysteries, I immediately found your Velisca season. I love you did an entire season on it. I don't know if everybody does, but... Um, yeah, yeah but- well, there were... <laughs> A lot of yeah. court, lot of court cases. Yeah, uh, I've been uh, we binging... enjoyed it. But... Oh yeah, it was a hell of fun. <laughs> I've been binging the show lately as my job has me in my car a good part of the day. Between you guys and Scott and Forrest, I can chase both shows down tangents and rabbit holes all day long. Thank you for the fantastic podcast. That's cool. it. It's awesome when when people lump us in with those guys. Like I know that you guys yeah. get on to be on the show and stuff, but they're they're just great. So yeah, um, thank I'm you for free. that. Uh, okay, so this one didn't make me cry. Uh, I think Marion, um, uh, what's her name? Parker uh, did it for me the, you know, the oh. last time. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, as much as I uh, talk shit on small children and how they creep me out, I do get sad when bad yep. things happen yep. to them. Uh, and again, we're going to start out with um, a little this short. This was kind of a double whammy. Yeah, yeah, double, double whammy. I, yeah. Little yes. kids. Yeah, I so know. 1911, five-year-old Elsie uh, uh, Perobic is uh, taken by gypsies in Chicago. So yeah, you mentioned yeah. this is this is a... We're not supposed to say that anymore, but right. but that's what they said at the time, yes. so I, that's why I used it. Yes. And, I, and I did make reference to what we're supposed to say uh-huh. um, in, in, in the article, but, or in the, in the, in the piece, but, um, but at the time... They mm-hmm. were gypsies. That's you what know, they'd say. So, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, Father Frank goes to the police that night. The next day, Captain John Mahoney finally takes over. Uh, finds there's, you know, one kind of wagon that takes off. I'm guessing this is, do they kind of just go do their own thing a lot, though? Are they stay in groups? Is this a... Well, it, I think it varies. I think it varied at the time. Um, I, you know, it's so hard to tell because so much as when I was researching the story, I was, I've got a stack of newspaper research that's probably four inches thick from mm. all the newspaper stories at the time because this became really sensational which is yeah. kind of shocking honestly because this was a a, a fairly poor immigrant family mm-hmm. and the fact that the people of chicago really embraced the story the way that they did is a little bit of a surprise but it was it filled the newspapers and there actually had been another little girl the year before mm-hmm. named lillian wolf who had who i just i couldn't you know, that's a whole different tangent, sure. um, but she does not really play a role in the story, but she really had been taken by gypsies and had been found oh, right. the year before. So the police actually went to her for advice. Yes, yeah, she, she's oh, seven. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, you, know, you know, what else I know, do, but, but still, yeah. yeah, I mean, they were grasping at straws, but yeah. So they went to her and, you know, and tried to get some ideas. So they're chasing down gypsy wagons i mean all over you know the the illinois and the surrounding states yeah she wasn't taken by gypsies i mean Mm -hmm. that was a that was just a you know a a prejudiced kind of thing right let's blame it on gypsies they'll steal anything that isn't nailed down you know including little kids yeah so that's unfortunately probably why the case never got solved because that's how they spent all their time chasing Mm -hmm. gypsies yes or romany 
So. And that is that that's like a group that's portrayed in like Snatch, right? With Brad Pitt in them. Or yeah, is that... yeah, that's a modern version of it. Yes, got it. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was just talking about. That I like movie, that yeah. movie. Yeah. It's such it's such a good one. It's um, it's an odd one. It is an odd one. <laughs> well, he's really odd in it. So <laughs> I just I love putting the closed captions on and stuff. Mm-hmm. When talking, and, and then I think they have well the closed it. captions came on even if you oh, didn't I, watch well, it I with meant, captions. I think yeah. they have the. I don't want to say I know what they're called in that, but I don't know if that's a bad term to use or not either. But they have that as a closed caption option too, oh, so you yeah. can see exactly what he's really saying. That's um, funny. It's 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 weird. Um, but anyway, so she might have been taken by the organ grinder. Tell talk to me about this concept. There's a monkey. Okay. I I I'm I I you know I wondered about that. Um, I think I I've seen it, but there. I don't know. Yeah, I put that in there, and then I kind of thought, is anybody even really going to remember what this is? Um, this was a form of entertainment, I guess, um, street busking sort of, yeah, except it, it wasn't really, he wasn't really playing music. He had a box that pl- when you crank the handle, it played music uh-huh. and these guys would go around with trained monkeys and then the monkey would dance and they would put a hat out for you to throw your change in, you know? And so it was, you know, it was street performance, but it was a it was a big thing in like you know again again we're we're back on this you know these stereotypes from the turn of the century you know this was like a big Italian you know the guys with the big must curly mustaches and you know and the dancing monkey and the I mean it's just it's not it's it's not a it's like a yes we have no bananas kind of thing you know if you listen to that if you read the words that song it's horrible it's a horribly racist song but. So is organ grinder monkeys and stuff. I mean, it was just kind of a, a racial or at least a, um, you know, a, a national stereotype at the time. But, you know, again, it just seemed like the why not in this story? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? We've yes. already got gypsies stealing children. Why not organ grinders and their monkeys, too? You know, um, so apparently there was one around and, the, and it was a thing at one time. Uh, but as far as gypsies go, uh, gypsies, the Romani didn't play any part in the story whatsoever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just seemed like a good thing to blame it on after the little girl that had been taken by some, you know, random gypsy Romani person the year yeah. before. Now suddenly be on the lookout, you know, for for gypsy wagons everywhere. Got it. Got it. Uh, sorry. Back, back. One more thing. Back to the monkey. Um, is this, is this is this the uh, like capuchin monkey? Yeah, like little bit, little monkeys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm like so- yeah, like the one from Friends. Okay, because I, I have seen this portrait. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't like gorillas or you know or chimpanzees <laughs> right. and wearing clothes and smoking cigars. Or got it. Got anything. it. Got it. it little monkeys. Uh, right. So you said okay. So basically, yeah, so the city goes crazy. All the Czech-speaking policemen are put into plain clothes. Uh, by the twenty seven, by May seven, twenty five more camps have been searched. So they're really just going yeah. all out. Yeah, they probably would have been better off to focus on, you know, the the, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I know they were trying to appeal to the Czech community uh, because that's where the family had come from, and mm-hmm. maybe keeping those officers in plain clothes and spreading them out through the neighborhoods, they might have been able to find some clue yeah. rather than chasing Romani all over the state. But right, you know. That seemed like a worthwhile lead at the time, I guess. So yeah, and so she's eventually found on uh, May 9th. Her body's found a drainage canal near Juliet. She's been raped and beaten and before suffocated. She was five, you said. Five. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Well, again, it just goes to show the good old days weren't 
always good. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean that this this as we are always telling people, this stuff this isn't these killing children and horrible murders and crimes and things is not a modern thing. It's mm-hmm. been around forever. It just wasn't, you know, it's just not widely thought of. You know, we don't think back to the turn of the century and think about serial killers and child murderers, but they were out there. You yeah. know, they were out there and this yeah. this is a good proof of it well i say it to people every now and then but i said it to a couple of people at the conference and they'd say like you know i know i'm afraid i'm afraid of these ghosts i don't want to get hurt or anything and i was like you need to be way more afraid of the people that are alive <laughs> yeah. than the people that fear are the living yeah. yes uh, the police have a suspect a bearded bohemian named joseph canestri um was he just scared of the police and going back or something yeah i just i just it was just some weirdo i mean yeah. it was just the, the, the oddball guy who lives down the street blame him for something kind of like the romany in their wagon right, or right, whatever right. you know and so and why he killed himself who knows yeah I mean, that's what he, i was wondering good like, chance i mean you know he was always said to be eccentric and strange and mm-hmm. people talk about how he enticed little girls to his hut by the drainage canal now that could have been anything it could have meant that he was you know maybe mentally disabled or something and you know talk to children because it was on the same wavelength you know it's hard to say um there's no evidence he ever did anything wrong and it turned out he had a solid alibi but he was so freaked out by the way he was treated by the police he killed himself yeah you know so yeah and then then the case goes cold well, yeah. yeah, because they never, what else is honestly, they never caught the gypsies. So that's uh, why I honestly, I think that's one of the main reasons here yeah. is they, they gave up because they thought they were still convinced it was, you know, then if Romany people hadn't taken her, they'd murdered her. Mm-hmm. And now they found her body and they figured, well, they're long gone now. So, and they gave up, yeah. but whoever did this, I, 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 I kept searching. I searched ahead over the mm-hmm. next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So whoever did it apparently didn't do it again in Chicago because I can't find any references to a similar crime. Oh, so bizarre. I don't know. It was a one-time thing. I wish there was a way we could know some details, but I just don't see any way to do it. Yeah. You know, it's, I've, I've never really seen this case covered anywhere, but in, you know, uh, I've stumbled across it probably seven, eight years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so I dug deep on it when I was doing my uh, Suffer the Children book. Oh, yeah. Um, I really started doing some digging into the old newspapers and really hard in the research. And um, there's just not a lot out there. I mean, it's not a it's not a known story, mm-hmm. you know, so it's too bad. Oh, it is too bad. Well, on to a happier story. So Beverly Potts, yeah, um, that's so much happier. Yeah, yeah. gosh. Hey, so, at least it's the 1950s, though. Bad things don't happen in the 50s. No, no. It's yeah. leave, it, leave it to Beaver and everything's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, so 50s Cleveland, Ohio. Um, she's excited to go to the park and see the sh- is it show wagons? That just show wagon. wagon. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, I had to look into that because I'm, I'm not, I wasn't quite getting it. But apparently and then I started to get it. Um, this is and it's going to be before your time. I'm sorry, okay. um, but That's you can look it up. You can yeah. Google it if you want to. But um, the up with people, have you, have you ever heard of nope, up with people? Not ringing any so, bells. So it's it is the worst. It would just make your brain hurt. I want you to look up some YouTube videos or not, something of up with people. It's not upright citizens brigade. No, no, no. <laughs> it is. It was like this rah rah um, show thing that. People, I mean, one year they performed it. I mean, before they started bringing in like big rock stars and stuff for uh, the Super Bowl one year, I think it was up with people. It okay. was like a high on life 
people. Oh, I mean, and so it's that kind of thing. It was like a community theater. uh, Everything's happy, you know, good times. You know, we're going to sing and dance and magicians are going to perform. But I mean, but, you know, we're talking about 1950. They had one television station. It was brand new in Cleveland. Not a hell of a lot to do. Yeah. So, you know, um, this kind of stuff in the summertime must have seemed fantastic to kids. Sure. Yeah. You know, but everybody in the community would come down to watch. And this particular thing, this show wagon traveled all through Cleveland's neighborhoods throughout the summer. They had kind of a schedule they kept and they went to different parks and schools and things. But and it, it is as lame as it sounds, just yeah, so yeah. you know, because I, I had to find out. So but I'm sure it was great at the time. So Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, I think it's an old John Mulaney thing where he's like, what do people do like way back in the days? Like they just wake <laughs> up and they're like, oh, it's the olden times. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. Um, <laughs> so she and her friend Patricia go to the park. Uh, Patricia ends up going home earlier and early. And she says she kind of like turns around. Maybe the last thing she sees is possibly a woman with the hand on Beverly's mm-hmm. shoulder. Which never comes back up again. I, I was wondering um, They never was were able or... to identify who the woman was. And she had a baby with her. I mean, it, it might have been a neighbor or maybe it looked like she had her hand on her shoulder i mean there's nothing to say that's for sure i mean you know beverly was was keeping the schedule to exactly what she'd promised her mother Mm -hmm. you know it's no wonder she'd gotten in trouble for staying out late you know it's no wonder she was grounded because you know it's like okay we'll be home before dark but mom said i could stay till it was over so So, you know uh uh-huh technicality i got a loophole there yeah. yeah Um, tons of people come forward with false leads. And this is like one of the things, I mean, once the tip lines open, you see like cops are just like, are you really want to do this and open this madhouse? Um, all hell breaks loose. Uh, three months earlier, a five-year-old girl named Gail and Michelle had been taken. Two girls that same month were sexually assaulted in Halloran Park, just more sexual assault, TTC. So people are, you know, they're thinking it might just be more of the same. Um, the cops think she's kidnapped. Which is kind of disturbing. I mean, that whole thing is pretty disturbing when you think that this might not have been an isolated incident. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and and the police at the time, again, not really prepared to handle that kind of thing, mm-hmm. never put any of the pieces together. Yeah, I mean, it's... they didn't they didn't link it all up and go, well, I mean, the reason why is because they were probably in different different parts of the city or suburbs so nobody communicated with anybody. So it's easy for us to look back now and go, oh, look at all these assaults that were going on um, at the time, but they didn't even know they were happening. Yeah, you would you think see that what I there, mean? You'd think if yeah. there were two girls assaulted in the same park, though. Well, you would think so. Yeah, but, uh, it's maybe, maybe not. I don't know, not, Cleveland. Not exactly crack detectives there, yeah. but um, I don't know. I mean, you know, but again, though, there was a panic going on and there were hundreds of calls coming in because this made big news kind of mm-hmm. like Elsie Perobic did in 1911 made big news got a missing girl you know who uh, an, an absolutely ordinary well it's white girl syndrome this is exactly mm-hmm. what it is yeah and so here is something that you need to worry about uh, yeah because it could be your kids so you know we're the people 
that control the newspapers and things. And so that's the story we're going to give you because mm-hmm. it is going to scare you the most. Yeah. And that's how the media has always worked. Yeah. You know, nothing, nothing, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. Know? Right. Um, yeah, and, and nothing, nothing unites people, gets people in an uproar and scared like a missing white girl. Like, it's yeah, just- exactly. Exactly. So, you know, now they, they've got no idea what's going on. Is mm-hmm. it kidnapping? Is it, uh, you know, something random? Uh, they don't know because they don't have a single clue. Yep. Uh, FBI is like, we don't even know if she was kidnapped. Yeah. I mean, for all we know, she ran away. And I thought, well, that, that's really, they're on the ball too. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but anyway, yeah, they just, they, nothing. I mean, yeah. They yeah. hauled in all the usual suspects, you know, all the male deviants with child molesting records, um, you know, the usual suspects, but couldn't get anywhere with that either. Yeah. Well, now that you mentioned everything else before that, now I'm wondering, like, maybe they did have the person that did it. it, it in no, they interview. didn't. Oh, you don't no, think? No, they didn't. I don't think so. I'll tell you how I think it was. I think it was somebody uh, that lived on her block. I think it was somebody that lived in her own neighborhood. Right. And okay. uh, I think some, you know, some, you know, some creep who had been watching this kid for years so it, and was, saw his chance and took from, it Yeah, and, and dumped you. her somewhere when he was done. That's yeah. what I think. Because yeah. I don't know that. That's just a, that's just a, a theory from uh, I've read over and I have dealt with this case quite a bit. And actually this is the, the most I've written about it because there's not a lot of material. Mm-hmm. Again, time moved on. You know, there were some weird things that happened afterward, which we'll, I know we'll talk about, but yeah. you know, um, but I, I honestly, if I had to guess, that was the reason they didn't catch him because it was somebody that nobody suspected. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting. Theory, but, you know. One of the things I thought was heartbreaking is um Grace Michelle would have been Beverly's fifth grade teacher, kept an empty seat waiting oh, for her in the classroom. I know. Ew. You know what that would be like, though, being a kid in that class, coming in every day and seeing that empty desk. Yeah, be like, am I next? Or like, uh, yeah, God, that would be, yeah, that would be hard to yeah focus it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's probably you like know. it's probably like the mom who like sets the place at dinner yeah for like the, yeah you know kid yeah, that died no or whatever well like, like the family the the family that boy that we the mel the uh, melvin kid that we talked about a, a few episodes back whose parents kept the christmas tree up with oh, his yeah. presents under it for like a year yeah afterwards so this is the same kind of thing you know oh. you got that desk sitting there in the room and every day you walk because you know these kids probably knew her because they you know they just kept moving up through the school grades with the same class yeah and that school and so they'd known her since probably first grade or kindergarten and now they're you know, the longer it goes, the more time that it's more noticeable she's missing. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Like when I, when I read that, I was like 20%, like that's like heartbreaking and 80%, like that's horrifying. And I yeah, don't like it. Is. It. it is both. Um, but uh, yeah. So there's, like you said, weird shit. The family gets a ransom call, decides that uh, work with yeah. the police. That just ends up being a loser. I did like your description of Detective <laughs> Bernard J. Conley dressing up in his mother's yeah. clothes. Yeah. He's a big dude too. And I thought, nobody's gonna fall for that yeah you know did they uh, was this did they not have um like female police officers then no not 1951 not cleveland and i i mean if they did they were probably like jail matrons or something but there were no definitely no female detectives gotcha there might have been meter maids or something in 1951 in cleveland but no detectives got it it's like geez at least at least pick a guy with a smaller build or something i know something (laughs) i yeah i guess they thought well if something goes bad he can handle himself that's true but i mean and you know hey for all we know uh, you know his mom was a big woman right, so if right. the dress fit you know yeah i just i was, that was so funny and they you know they 
they uh, ragged him for months. Yeah, about- <laughs> which yeah, right, probably rightfully so. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But you know what? I like that he did. He he. Hey did, man, he made know? an effort. So yeah, he went the went the whole nine yards. Yeah, so. and you think in '55 that um, you know they might have started to catch a break uh, when they arrest somebody, but he's eventually cleared. That's the uh, titular. <laughs> Yeah. Four months later, Harvey Lee Rush confesses, and this turns out to not uh, pan again. out. Yeah. Uh, oh, he had been arrested over a hundred times for public intoxication. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. that's like well, the, like, okay, but you know, and the thing about that, yeah, uh, right, a hundred times for public intoxication, but the fact that he ended up in a mental hospital tells me that he probably was not drunk. Oh, sure. During those that's, times, that's he was a good probably point. really mentally ill. Um, and yeah. everybody just assumed he was drunk because he was acting, mm-hmm. you know, out of hand because the fact that he ended up in a mental hospital makes me think that there was yeah. more to that story. But mm. again, didn't do it. And all these right. people kept, you know, confessing to it and, you know, or people they thought they had the guy who was, you know, had accumulated 50 charges of molesting young girls and had been, you know, exposing himself in in a park in Cleveland. And, you know, he just turned out to be, you know, just something else. You know, it was in a mental hospital. Yeah. Was just making things up. Well, geez. Okay. So let me hold on. I got to skip that. Well, in the family too, the family too, the mom, (laughs) yeah, the (laughs) the mom who just like dies of a broken heart. Yeah. It's like young when she dies. And then when, you know, the, the daughter moves out of town and doesn't talk about her sister anymore. And then when the dad dies and they, they find him, he just like was watching TV in his living room and had a heart attack and just laid there for days before anybody found him because he was just completely, you know, they just never recovered from this right. at all. The family right. was destroyed by it too. So essentially, you know, the, the way that he felt that this, whoever had taken his daughter had killed his wife too. You know, yeah, right, right. And then really, I mean, he just wasted away. I mean, he lived longer, but what kind of life? Apparently not a I great know. one, you know. Yeah. Living in that same house. Yeah, that self kind of yeah. that's, that's got oh, a recipe. Oh, for, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh probably with a Christmas tree still up. No, yeah. I'm kidding. It's <laughs> summertime. So we hope uh, not. Christmas in July, you know. Um, <laughs> so you it's you know so hot outside. It's too hot to take down the Christmas lights. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so you're, no, you're good. I'm trying. To, okay. Uh, you don't. So you don't necessarily um, think anything pans out with the 1980 uh, theory. With I don't uh, know. Fierce you know, uh, there's so many. I've run across so many cases like that where and and listen, these guys may have been fantastic detectives. This is not to knock them at all. Mm-hmm. But I also know that guys who get this obsessed with a story or with a case like this um, will often believe they've solved it. Probably and, have blinders and on. They have blinders on and don't see anything else. So, I mean, it's it's possible or for all we know, this guy was, you know, the, well, the DA took the evidence and said, yeah, I can't. Stuff that I could do with this. Right. You're telling me the guy said this, but he's going to deny it. And you don't have any evidence. You only have your guesswork going into it. So, I mean, maybe that was him, but I don't know, man. I, um, it's hard to say. Yeah. With the, with this one, I was wondering, like, of course, I, I, we only have so much context, but I was like, okay, right. go track him down again and try to get some more evidence out of the yeah. guy. If you're really yeah. that convinced it's him. I know. Right. And um, you know, if you are retired, you, you know, if you're, 
you know, if you were a good cop and you still got friends that are on the force, they're going to take your word for it. Sure. And they will open it up officially. But yeah. And you if know. you're if you're retired, then you don't have as many rules. You got to play. By yeah, well, that's bet. true. It's exactly <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Oh, I'm an ordinary citizen. So, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Uh, 1994. This is a very interesting thing to the couple yeah. re- renovating the house. Discover several pieces of yellowing notebook paper uh, and some a shirt beneath of some old carpeting uh did you touch back on the shirt part i didn't know was it supposed to be have blood no i think it, it probably just... yeah i i didn't run across any information about okay. the shirt so uh i guess it was found with the letters but what was this woman's deal Hell i mean i know no she theory, hates her man. ex-husband i get it but i don't know i mean and then just would like write it all down and then hide it somewhere to me that seems like you know, knowing someone's going to find this someday. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just, I don't get the motive here. And then she claims she doesn't even remember writing it, which maybe she doesn't. It's a long time later, but I don't know, man. It's I can a see weird story. I, I feel like with her, she's probably like, I've done so many batshit crazy things like that. Like I forgot about that. Oh one, yeah, probably. Know? Yeah. That's probably about right. I mean, well, okay. Cause you, you've got a screw loose. Yeah. If you go to that much trouble to do that and then hide it somewhere in your house under yeah. carpeting, knowing that someday someone will probably take up that carpeting. You've, you've got your own issues. Mm-hmm. I'm sure her husband was a piece of crap, but uh, she's, not, she's a little out there herself. Yeah. But very she's like, weird. She's, yeah. She's putting down carpeting. She's like, this is going to be hilarious. Oh yeah. <laughs> really funny. Yeah. Uh, 2000, a dying man writes letters confessing, but they don't pan out because what do you say? You're taking kind of like sentences word from word from other hopes. Yeah. From things. other, from other letters. And then that, you know, that made them start thinking that whoever this was, it might've be a cop, you know, who was a guy who was sending these letters in and, and not, not someone who was guilty, but some, again, a cop with a, some, <laughs> something, something loose somewhere, yeah, man. Right. And starts kind of messing with this thing. But I mean, all of this stuff is so creepy that it just keeps coming back. I mean, we're, we're, it's 50 some years later yeah. and they're still, you know, some people are still obsessed with the story. You know, it's, it's very creepy. So. Yeah. Freaking Cleveland, man. And then, I mean, again, <laughs> just, that's kind of, it's just fades out for now and yeah. it goes, yeah. goes, keeps, continues yeah. to stay cold. Yeah. Uh, is there oh, anything man. else we need to go over that I didn't touch on with no, that? I don't. One. I don't think so. It's just it's um it's a it's a wild story. It really yeah. is. You know. Uh, okay. Well, I hope they get happier after this. I'm sure they won't. Oh yeah, them. yeah. There's a real good chance of that. So. <laughs> uh, well, I want to give a quick shout out to um, our latest patrons. So thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, to Tanya, Christine, Leah, Wendy, Carol, Christina, Mike, Jennifer. Kristen, Ava, Doug, Samantha, Bean, Julie, and Nuthouse Queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Whatever. Hey, thanks. I, I don't no. care what you put as your name. I don't thanks either. For supporting the show. I don't either. Yeah, we appreciate it. Uh, people are still jumping onto this HA Tomes podcast that we're doing. So it's been fun. Um, yeah, it has been fun. I, I actually look forward to it each time when it, I got to put a new one together. I really do. I enjoy working on it. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun for me. And, um, you know, just just doing new stuff with it, you know, and finding out new things. And, mm-hmm. You know, I, I nothing really drastic has changed as far as, you know, what I think or whether or not he was guilty or whether he was a criminal. All those things have stayed pretty much the same. But I found some new information about some of the stuff that 
really adds to the story, mm -hmm. you know, and which is, I mean, that I think has been one of the things that's the most fun about it. It was just like working on the Alton, the new edition of the Alton book or anything I do a new edition of. Um, I do a new edition because new things have been learned, not because I suddenly have decided, oh, H.H. H. Holmes was really just this nice guy who was badly misunderstood. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're <laughs> you right, know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, that's part of doing what I do is finding more research and more history. And then you go back and you update things. It's it's not like I've suddenly decided that, you know, anything has changed. I mean, it's it's my opinion hasn't changed on it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that um, I'm finding new things. It's just like, you know, I don't I don't suddenly think that, oh, my God, there are UFOs zapping people out of the Bermuda Triangle, you mm -hmm. know, for instance. I mean, that's it's ridiculous. It's a stupid story. It's not real. It's just tabloid stuff from the 70s, you know. Um, but I don't I don't go back and go, oh, my God, everything's different about H.H. E. Holmes. It's not. There's just new information in there. Yeah. And it's sometimes, you know, um, information that you find, even in newspapers and things, weren't always accurate. So mm -hmm. you find new information that is. So and yeah, it's and that's been a lot I mean, of fun. And that's how it should be. When new information about things comes to light, exactly. it, sh it should change opinions. It should change your yeah. opinion. Yeah. And, and so. it's also been a great, um, I think, uh, study and a character study for you and uh, character mm -hmm. work. And, oh, yeah, um, that's been fun. You're, <laughs> if you like Troy's voice, just oh, the, the, he does multiple well, voices oh god yeah but they're they're so fun and oh. some of them are getting even funnier and but they're still good but um oh, um yeah it's right i mean men women uh you haven't, <laughs> any, you haven't portrayed any children yet have you i don't think oh no i, I haven't <laughs> we'll see I if that's I gonna come up to. oh god i'm going to have to it just dawned on me oh no you know maybe well, anyway you can, maybe First off, give it your best shot. But then if you can't, I'll do like a filter or something on it. Okay. And, yeah, that might, that might be better. Uh, so either way, it's fun for me. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, it is It is now time for our ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. And I haven't been getting too many of those lately. So please, um, yeah, send me in if you guys have stories or questions or anything you want to talk about. Um, this one is, I was digging through some older stuff and trying to see if there's anything I missed. And I don't know if I missed this one or not, but I wanted to talk about it anyway, because <laughs> I thought it was relevant and it might be a little late, but, um, this one's from Jamie R and the subject is trip to Alton it says, hi guys, I met Troy before, but I haven't met you, Cody. Well, Jamie, I hope that we've either changed that or we will change that. Uh, my name's Jamie. I'm from the same small ass town as Troy. Anyway, my <laughs> husband and I are going to take a little trip to Alton this fall and do one of Troy's dinner events. Oh, okay. So I haven't, not too Oh, late. so you haven't missed it. Yeah. No. So, uh, but I was wondering what else we should do while we were there. We aren't sure yet if we're staying a whole weekend or just a night. There's so much history there. I'm not sure where to start. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work, Jamie. Um, I would say make a whole weekend out of it if you can. Yeah, why not? Um, yeah. And if, if you're coming down for one of the dinners and do a tour too. I yeah, mean, I'm not just trying to shake these people down. I mean, I'm there just you saying go. it's a different way to see stuff. Yeah. That's all. You know, sure, yeah. it is a different way to see stuff, though. Um, yeah, it is. Um, gives you a chance to see other parts of the town and you get a little bit different history, too, than you would normally get. I mean, there there aren't any just like history tours in town. Right. You know? So that's why one of the reasons we do so much history with our ghost tours is it's a history tour with ghosts. I mean, essentially, that's what we do. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it might be worth it if you come down on a weekend when there's a couple of different things going on. So and in the fall, there normally is. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd yeah. say ch check that out. And um, I have like tons of like 
pizza recommendations and oh, pizza, sure. pizza yeah. not recommendations. Mostly, yeah. mostly things related to pizza. Um, so yeah, if, yeah, if, if you if you have thoughts on that, you know, shoot me another email or something. We can we can help you figure it out. But uh, I hope you enjoy your trip. That's all I got, man. All right. Well, yeah, I'll just add a couple things. Um, don't forget to use the podcast discount code. Uh, use that promo code when you're checking out anywhere at AmericanHauntings.net or in the American Hauntings Clothing Store, which is AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. Uh, you can use that promo code there. It saves you 10% off everything. So it's like we're just giving things away. Um, and also we mentioned Patreon. Um, check that out. Patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Uh, we are in the middle of our third season of our other podcast. So you can actually get um, well, if you're listening now, currently, you get this podcast, then you get our Alton Revisited podcast and our Patreon podcast. Um, those two both come out in the same week. So yes. you got three podcasts to listen to, um, and you've got something every week right now to listen to. So uh, don't miss it if you are interested in, you know, hearing more of us. I don't know I why know, it would God. be, but if you it's... are... Uh, <laughs> It's so much oh, of us. I think you like it. <laughs> it's so much of us. I was, I was talking. It is to, a lot. I was talking to some people from the conference, and um, someone asked me, "It's like, so do you like listen to your own podcast?" And I was like, "No." They're like, "What are you talking about?" I was like, "I listen to it th- like three yeah, times." You while have to I'm listen to it, it forever. Yeah, while I'm I listen it. to it so I can send Cody critiques. No, I don't really. <laughs> I, I do like to. I do like to listen to the Patreon one though. Cause I loved it. Cause I don't get to hear the sound effects when I'm That's doing a good it. point. I mean, unless I'm sitting back here ringing bells and you know, <laughs> oh, it's a horse, oh, a horse, hear the horse. You I know? didn't even think about so, putting yeah, sound I don't effects on you hear any of that stuff. So I, um, I, I like to listen to it just to, I don't want to hear myself, but I do like to hear how yeah. it all blends and of and course it's gotten and, good. So. And I will say uh, probably about once a month or so I do put on an episode and, and I always, what, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I always listen to be like, okay, make sure, make sure tra- yeah, transitions are yeah, good. It sounds yeah, good, yeah. but um, every now and then I'll throw one on, but um, I think I've just, I listened to it so much while I'm doing it that oh, I've gotten, yeah, I'm sure. it's been a little too much. Um, and uh, <laughs> like, you know, at first I think it was, it was weird. It used to be weird to hear my own voice. That doesn't bother me anymore at all. Um, but uh, I think it's an ego thing too. It'd be like, if I listen to my own podcast every week, I'd feel like even more of an ass than I already do. Um, and uh, oh, yeah, and another thing, like she was asking like, oh, do you remember this like one tidbit thing? I was like, no. no. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, we've done, <laughs> no. I've edited 200 episodes. Yeah. Like, I, I yeah. can't, of I'm sorry. Not I, even counting the Patreon. Yeah, stuff. exactly. I'm like, I can't remember oh, this no. one dumb joke or this <laughs> one, like, and that's even sometimes Troy would be like referencing somebody like, oh, this one episode about this one guy. And I'm like, damn it. These names are just sometimes <laughs> in and out, you know? Um, anyway. Okay. Well, okay. This episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited and edited and edited by. Uh, that's what Beck. I was going to say. And I wrote it and I recorded it. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know. <laughs> yeah. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes, tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street about it and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. You can find the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. Troy's been sending me photos and I've been putting them up with the yes. individual yes. Um, episode pages. So yeah, you can see what's going on there. And sometimes I'll put them up on Instagram for a little bit. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and anywhere else that you waste hours every day. Yeah, I just day. put up a new TikTok video this oh, weekend. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. 
Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, check that out when you're supposed to be working or studying. We promise that we're probably much more entertaining. <laughs> Depending on what you're studying. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so if, you're, if it's like accounting, then no, keep doing that. You don't want to listen to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, we couldn't, definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. All right, one down. Uh, stop.